many of you like to get calls from debt collection agencies? Anyone? Yes, yeah, 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 yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. How about a debt collection agency that tells you that they're going to arrest you if you don't pay your debts? How about a debt collection agency that calls your coworkers and family members and says you're going to get arrested if they, you don't pay your debts? How about a debt collecting agency that pretends to be law enforcement and says they will take your children away if you don't pay your debts? Well, the debt collecting agency of Goldman Schwartz did just that. And uh, they would call people pretending to be law enforcement or lawyers saying they would take their children away if they did not pay their debts. I don't know if you know this, but that's against the law. You can't do that. And the Federal Trade Commission actually caught wind of them doing this and they got shut down. Well, today's passage isn't just someone calling about collections. It's three people coming in the flesh to take a collection. What is our reaction? Is it that stress of an 800 number that you don't know calling you and you just ignore that 800 number? Is it the awkwardness of people asking you for money and you just start twitching and turn the other way? Or is it that wondering if you've come on that Sunday, like today, and you're about to head for the door? Well, today, we're going to see how the church in Corinth should respond to three people coming to keep them accountable, specifically about their accounts. So how do we? How do we respond to those who are sent to keep us accountable? And what does it reveal about our hearts when they do? Let's find out, shall we? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 through 24. Let's pay attention as we look at God's word together. It's also printed in your worship guide. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us. For the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters. But who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus... He is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the, of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. Welcome. We are going through this epistle 
this letter of 2 Corinthians, and really is letters of a complicated relationship between Paul, this church he planted, and this church in southern Greece. For the first seven chapters of this letter, Paul has been defending his ministry against many people that are wondering about his credibility and whether they should listen to what he says and his fellow workers, his fellow apostles about the gospel. And Paul has been dealing with this church for a long period of time, dealing with their sexual morality, their idolatry, their misuse of spiritual gifts, their disunity. He's written four letters to them. He's done a painful visit. He sent other workers to talk to them about what's going on. But through all of this, they have repented and he is now encouraged about what's happening in Corinth. And this is a lot of the things that we've seen in the first seven chapters. The encouragement of what's happening in this church. But now for the next two chapters, chapter 8 and 9, Paul is going to get into the weeds. The practical issues that are going on in the church. Specifically this issue of an offering that was pledged by this church in Corinth to the church in Jerusalem. See, the church in Jerusalem was dealing with persecution and also famine and poverty. And there was an offering being taken place in the Roman world to be able, to, among those churches, to be received by the church in Jerusalem. But Corinth has kind of delayed in collecting the offering. And for these next three weeks, we're looking at Paul trying to respond to this delay and this misgivings that some of them have about taking this offering. Last week, Luke looked at some of these issues. The misgivings that they have was they felt like it was under compulsion. They might be giving beyond their means or the hardship it might bring on Corinth versus what it could give to Jerusalem. And Paul answers those questions. And Luke did a good job of showing us the antidote last week, which was big red soda. No, that wasn't the antidote, no. But he did give a good illustration that it was the shaking of a soda can that it bursts open, and that's the idea of the gospel, that the generosity just comes forward. That the gospel causes us to respond in generosity. And that is the heart that Paul is after in these people giving the gift to Jerusalem. Well, today, passages that are many times skipped over, we're specifically look at the administration of this gift. For those of you that work with Excel spreadsheets, that look at balance sheets all week, that decide physical year budgets for your companies. Those of you that are CPAs and accountants, this passage is for you. You've been waiting. Here it is. And here we see Paul is sending some accountants to Corinth. If some of you are wondering why for the next three weeks, last week, this week, and next week, we're talking about money and generosity during the kind of the biggest times of the church year, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. You're wondering why we'd be talking about this. You're in good company because I'm wondering the same thing. 
This is not an agenda thing, okay? We're not going through a capital campaign. We're not trying to raise money. No, we're just going through the books of the Bible. That's what we do here at Emmaus Road. And guess what? This is where we've landed at this time. This is what we've got. I was thinking about this specifically as I read an editorial in the Washington Post last week. Is written by a gentleman who said he has walked away from his faith, walked away from the church. And this is what he said of why he has done such a thing. He said, but I often think that faith in God can be just as self-serving as staring at yourself in a mirror. The way a religion is practiced too commonly reflects the person who is practicing it. If you want to be rich, you can find a religion that tells you that's what God wants you to be. If you're a misogynist, you find a church that will reaffirm your misogyny. If you don't like our politics or some of our political leaders, there's a pew with your name on it somewhere, maybe closer than you think. And this is what he says of why he has left the faith and left Christianity. And this is what I say to him. I agree. And that is not Christianity. Christianity isn't following what we want. Then we just become a God ourselves. No, Christianity is following what God calls us to do in his word. And that's why we just go through it, word by word, verse by verse, passage by passage. It challenges us. It challenges us on racism. It challenges us on our sexual ethics. It challenges us on our hatred towards our enemies. It challenges us on what we do with the unborn. It challenges us on how we care for the poor and the needy. I don't care if you're on the left. I don't care if you're on the right. I don't care if you're white or you're black or you're Hispanic. The gospel challenges us wherever we might be because it's not based on us. It's based on special revelation, God's revelation to us of who he is in the world through Jesus Christ. And that's why I would love to sit down with that guy that wrote that article and say, you've just created yourself a God. Christianity says this is who God is, not what we think, but what he has done. So, that said, God likes to talk about money a lot. <laughs> I don't know if you've read the New Testament, specifically if you've read the Gospels. Jesus talks about money all the time. I think he does it because he knows we need direction in it. And it challenges us. The awkwardness of talking about money is not a new reality. Paul is affirming the awkwardness in this passage. He's being so very careful because these people in Corinth are very suspicious about this offering that he is asking for the church in Jerusalem. And that's why in this passage, he gives accountability and integrity, and he sends three people before him to be able to make sure this is done 
in the right way. That's why Luke gave the message last week instead of me. I'll just send someone else instead of myself having to talk about it. No. But this isn't just a haphazard collection of three people. Paul didn't just say, oh, who is the biggest dude that carries the biggest club that can come and get the money from Corinth? No, there's some serious thought put into who will take this letter to Corinth and who will take up the collection. Let's look at these three people, shall we? First, we have at the very beginning Titus, who Paul calls his partner, where we get the Greek word koinonia, fellowship. He's using that word koine. That's how close this partnership is between him and Titus. Here's the thing. Titus was aware of the very interesting dynamics going on in Corinth. He was the one that Paul, after writing the severe letter, went back to Corinth to see what was going on. And Paul writes that he was a little bit worried when he didn't hear from Titus and he didn't meet him up again, whether Titus was spooked that he was gone. He wasn't coming back. But then we see that Paul is very relieved that after Titus has gone and been with Corinth and he's seen that they have repented and has gone and told Paul this good news, we see that Titus, like Paul, is encouraged by what is going on in Corinth. And out of his own accord, his own desire, he wants to go back again, even though he just came from Corinth, he wants to go back to them, even with this message of the offering. Paul didn't summon someone with trepidation. He sent someone that cared for the church in Corinth. You know, when we want to be able to hold someone accountable, when we see something in their lives that we want to hold them to, do we send people, or even ourselves, do we come with actual care for those people? Imagine what it was like for Titus to come back to the situation where the church in Corinth has hesitated about the offering. How awkward that situation is. But still, Titus is going with care for them. Aaron and I, through the years, have much appreciated people in our lives that have held us accountable in our marriage. Whether it's myself talking to someone about what's going on in our marriage, or Aaron talking to someone what's going on in our marriage, the people that we've appreciated getting advice from are people that are for us. Hear what I said? Us. Not simply me, not simply Aaron. If I go to someone and says, oh, you're right, Dan. Aaron, man, she is messed up. I can't believe you have to put up with her. <laughs> no. That was not the time for amen, David. That was good. That was not the time. No. I, I want someone that would say, you know, I care for both of you in your marriage. 
What are you doing, Dan, in this situation? How can you love her? In the same way, when Aaron goes to it's okay for her to say, okay, Dan has issues, I have issues. But going to someone that says, Dan, he's a horrible guy, no. Someone that says, I'm for your marriage. Aaron, how can you look at the situation in the right way? That is the kind of people that we want for accountability. Titus coming to this church knowing them. He knows that God has worked upon them in this church. And now he's coming with care to them for them to be able to continue in this offering. That's the first person. Then the second person we hear is this famous person. He's famous for preaching the gospel. It's probably a person specifically that's preached the gospel in the area of Macedonia, northern Greece, where Paul's coming from, all these churches there. And here, this famous person doesn't even get a name. I love that. He's famous, but no name is given. Of course, there's been much conjecture through church history about who the person is. Is it Luke? Is it Barnabas? Is it Secunduis? Is it Sopater? We don't know, okay? But the importance is that he's doing it for the glory of the Lord, we also see that this person has been appointed by the church, meaning probably that he's been voted on by the church in Macedonia to go to Corinth to make sure that this offering is taken and collected. Why is this done? Well, Paul points out it's done because we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that's being administered by us. There is suspicion. I don't know if it's, it's not justified, but they're wondering, is Paul scamming? Is Paul taking money? Is this something for his own glory? There is wonder and suspicion in the church about this offering. And Paul is making sure to be totally above board in making sure that he sends someone of good esteem and voted on by the church. And what, he says, that it's looked upon well by the eyes of the Lord and by man. He's referring to a verse in Proverbs when he says that. This is true auditing. This is first century auditing and accounting. Three collecting the gifts. Someone tested. Someone voted on. Someone with good uh, reputation. To make sure the gift in, given to Jerusalem is done right, that is transported right to Jerusalem. The early church did not take accounting flippantly. If they didn't in the first century, neither should we. Accounting in a church is important. That's why we have, we have multiple people signing off on an offering. That we have at least three people on a finance team with checks and balances. The people who receive are not the people that write checks. That people are auditing, making sure we're doing the right things. That your pastors do not handle money. And neither do they see who gives what to the church. If Paul thinks it's important in the first century, we should think it's important in the 21st century. We want to be above board. We want to be transparent. We would transparent on our budget. Any of you can look at what is given, what is taken out, our budget, and what we make, and what is spent, 
is there for any of you to take a look at. So there is no suspicion that we would look good before the eyes of the Lord and by you, by man. So that when we come and ask, there would not be suspicion. But you would be knowing that there is good accounting. That's the second person. And then the third person, verse 22. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. This Greek word, earnestness, spode, is used over and over again in 2 Corinthians. It means zeal or haste or even can be translated care. The New Testament Theological Dictionary says this about the word. It's the character of people that have been motivated by God's grace in their lives. Now think about this. This guy comes from the churches in Macedonia. Churches that we realized were impoverished themselves. But they have given a gift to the church in Jerusalem. He comes from these churches, and he has probably heard about what's going on in Corinth. That this church that's wealthy in Corinth has hesitated on their gift to Jerusalem. You would think people that hear that from the church in Macedonia might be wondering, I don't like these people very much. But not this individual. No, he has an earnestness for them. He has a confidence in them. Where does this come from? We see it comes from the grace that he has received from God. That he would have grace and confidence that God is working upon them in their hearts. You know, if you want someone that is going to hold you accountable, or if you're holding someone accountable, you don't want someone that says, get your act together. Why can't you do better? Shape up. No, someone that has a full understanding of grace, an earnestness, a zeal, and a care, knowing that the Spirit and grace has worked upon their heart, that they would have a patience and a love and understanding as the Spirit works upon your heart for transformation. Even in sticky subjects, like what to do with your money. That's the kind of person you want talking to you. That's the person we should be when holding others accountable. Knowing the grace that God has given us. That we would go with, to people with zeal and earnestness and care. Three people. Three people. One with genuine care. Integrity earnestness if that is given if that is the approach given to you by someone trying to keep you accountable how will you respond to them keeping you accountable in things that God calls you to and when they do speak to you what will it reveal in you
I think some of us think God is like a debt collector. He's someone far away on the phone giving you a call. The awkward conversation that you try to ignore. But you know, oh yeah, that's God, that's religion, that's out there. I've just, I've got to deal with it. God is out there, far off, calling on me, asking me, get your act together, trying to get your attention. I find it very interesting in this passage, the phrases that are used twice of why these individuals are being sent to Corinth. It says, first, for the glory of the Lord. And the second time it says, your messengers are sent for the glory of the church and the glory of Christ. What is being meant here? That why they're being sent is for the glory of the Lord and the glory of Christ. Like these men that have come in the flesh to speak to the church in Corinth, we have a God that has come in the flesh to speak to us. He has not done it on the phone. He has not done it from a distance. He has come and dwelt among us in his incarnation through the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Palm Sunday is even a magnifying glass to that reality. Jesus had done all these missions throughout Israel, being in different places, spreading the gospel. But it's significant that Jesus comes to Jerusalem. See, his arriving in Jerusalem, saying that I'm coming, I'm arriving, I'm coming. He's saying, I am the king, and this is my kingdom. This is where I belong, in Jerusalem. And that's what people saw. It's the king coming into the capital, the rightful king. That when he comes, he deserves a response, that he deserves glory and honor in tribute, in palm fronds, which is what was done to people of royalty when they came in. Here is the king that has come. And the disciples, they loved this. The people of Jerusalem loved this. And they said, yes, we will lay down the fronds. We will give you glory and honor. Because why? You're a good bet. <laughs> You're a good bet. You could be taking over. So we want to make sure we're on the right side. I can commit money to this. I'll commit money to this guy. Because he might deliver for me. They saw him as this powerful king to give to. But that's not the glory of Christ. You see how quickly that kind of thinking goes away. In a few days, they went from Hosanna to crucify him. Do you know what the disciples' problem was? Do you know what the people's problem is? They didn't go far enough. No, the glory of Christ is actually him going to the cross. Christ didn't come so that he would collect our debts. He came 
to pay our debts. He came to pay them. I was reading John again about the episode of, you know, Palm Sunday. And something I never picked up for. That's why you should read the word over and over again. I never had seen this. Do you know what the Pharisees said to the people that said Hosanna and Jesus? Do you know what they said to them? By following him, you are gaining nothing. Don't you see, by following him, we gain everything because he gave everything for us in paying our debts, giving his life. The Pharisees didn't see it. The disciples didn't see it. The people didn't see it because they didn't go all the way. And that changes how we look at everything. Versus saying, okay, great, I got to pay up. Oh, great, I owe something. Oh, great, you know, I better make sure that I give to this powerful God. No, instead, we say, he has taken my guilt. He has taken my shame. He has given me everything. Even the burden and the weight of money and retirement and all the pressure of making sure that I'm secure, he's even taken that Imagine the difference. This is what it would be like. The difference would be like this. That you're getting a phone call from the 1-800 number. You know, you think it's a debt collection. And you're ignoring it, ignoring it. You've ignored it for months. Oh, no, you've ignored it for a couple years. Finally, you get a knock on the door. And it's this individual, and it says, I've been trying to call you for two years. I'm from a bank to tell you some news. And you're like, oh, great. What do I owe? I'm here to give you $100,000. I've been trying to give you for two years. And you've been ignoring it over and over and over again. That's the message of the gospel. He's not asking, oh, give me, give me, what can you, what you can do, what you can do, what you can do. No, God's saying, I'm lavishing something upon you so you can be free. I'm giving you a gift and a treasure greater than anything else this world can give. So that when you receive that treasure, when you receive that gift, of course you would give generously. Because it wasn't yours to begin with. You see, these men that are going to Corinth are representing the reality of what the Corinthians have changed into. They are representing the glory of Christ. They are representing that God has worked upon this people to know that their debt has been taken, that they have been given everything, and they will respond to that reality. They are representatives of the reality of what Christ has done. It's why it's said they're representing the glory of Christ. If you're going to hear anything I say today, this is the point, okay? 
how we respond to those that keep us accountable is an indicator of where our heart lies. And here it is, the rubber meets the road. Will this church in Corinth give to the need in Jerusalem, a church in much trouble? What will they do? Two years of church planting, four letters, a severe letter, a painful visit, many apostles, three highly esteemed individuals coming to them. What will the church do? How will they respond? to the giving to the church in Jerusalem. Verse 24. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Paul has boasted and bragged about Corinth to so many people. He's told them over and again, God has done a work in them. They are amazing. It is great. It's not because all the things, that they've done some pretty atrocious things. Again, like I've said over and over again, Paul boasts in them because he knows the Spirit has been at work in them. I love this. So give proof for the churches of your love. Many times, love can feel like this ambiguous word. Warm feelings, hugs, nice words. Not here. No, it's very concrete here. Your love is your money. Your money towards them. This is one of the most hardest things to hear. Something so near and dear to our hearts, our money. Paul has given so many caveats, cares, shown integrity, accountability. There should be no questions or doubting by Corinth by this point. Now what will they do? So what is our response? When we are asked to give to the kingdom, I'm gaining nothing. Where is the accountability? It's my money. I love in a different way. When the church at large asks, what is your heart saying? 